who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to go home. I was tired. I worked a graveyard shift, and I was going to sleep all day. But as I reached for the door, already imagining the cold shower and hitting the mattress, Mr. Crow came up to me with a really weird smile on his face. I think he was trying to look at me in a friendly way, or like you would smile at a little brother to show him you love him, even though you keep beating him up or something. I don't know. It was completely awkward, and I wanted to run away from the whole thing. Whatever it was. Back in his broom closet office, after trying to smile again a couple of times, he told me he was really impressed by my work at the sleeper station. I'm sure he wasn't being sarcastic, and that's... Well, that's just depressing. Telling someone they've been impressing you by waiting for the beep and then flipping the meat is... It makes you not like capitalism. Even though it's not capitalism's fault. Not directly. The way he said it, it sounded like he memorized it from a script. He probably did, actually. He probably got a script from upper management. Anyway, he tells me it's time to start climbing ranks. He tells me there's a bright future for me at BBU, and he's going to groom me. <laughs> he says he's going to be my mentor. I'm about to work my way up in the kitchen, starting by taking over Kim's position. And position, in this case, means pressing the bar down and taking out two pieces of lettuce and one slice of tomato. That's the promotion. Oh, and there's no pay bump. None. The most depressing thing, though, wasn't even the thought of working at BBU Corvat for the rest of my life. I felt that I didn't want to stop working that station. I didn't want to stop waiting for the beeps. The thought made me anxious. I wanted to come back the next day, let my lizard brain take over, and disappear into myself to the rhythm of the beeping circuit board. 
I was a junkie. And I was so far gone that I didn't even react to my best friend running away, leaving everything behind. I didn't even react to her asking me for help, asking me to come with her. This was an accidental intervention. Mr. Crow was my intervention, and it worked. I had to get myself away from that sleeper station. I had to get myself out of that town. I had to try and catch up with Kim. I was leaving Corvat. Without even saying anything, I turned around and ran away from the broom closet. I ran into the locker room. Somewhere during those seconds of running from the crow's office into the back area of the restaurant, I decided to steal his car. Just like that. Mr. Crow came walking towards the locker room. I heard him saying something about giving me a 5% raise. He said something about headquarters. I couldn't make it out. I was going through his jacket until I found his keys. Then I grabbed my backpack and left the restaurant for the last time. I ran into the back lot and found his car. Mr. Crow walked onto the parking lot also and kept talking about raises and corporate and climbing things, ladders and titles. I started fiddling with the keys to try to find the one that opened his car door. Even then, while I was literally breaking into his car, it took him a couple of seconds to process what was happening. I opened the door, sat behind the wheel, ignoring the weird smell, and turned on the ignition. In the rearview mirror, I saw him freeze. And then, he went into attack mode. Get back here, sleeper. I was trying to help you. I was offering you a lifetime of stability. As he started running towards the car, something changed. He started changing shape. It was hard for me to believe my own eyes, but he was transforming. He spread his arms. Black feathers shot out like stiletto knives. His eyes started changing. His feet barely touched the ground anymore. He was preparing for the chase. Without trying to answer the question of why Mr. Crow was turning into a literal crow, I backed out of the parking lot and drove off. There's only one road, so there's two ways out. Naraka City meant turning left, west. I put the pedal to the metal. Mr. Crow appeared over the shrinking BBU restaurant. He soared right past the big neon sign where Kim and I used to have lunch together. By the time I crossed Corvat's main intersection, I lost sight of him. I'm checking the rear view mirror. The road is empty, just a yellow line, unbroken. No dark figure, no feathery, ragged wings. But it's only a matter of time. The pedal is all the way down. The car is going about 90 miles per hour. I can't believe this. I've never driven this fast. Yellow road markings are one solid line disappearing beneath me. My only handhold at this point. My entire life I tried to imagine what it would be like to leave. To just drive away and, I don't know, just, just see other places, meet other people. Well, that's what I'm gonna do now. No matter what, I'm gonna find out what it's like leaving Corvat.
I open my eyes and there's only darkness. Not perfect darkness. I can see grayish outlines of something. Maybe closets or, or refrigerators? I can feel I'm laying on my back, on cold tiles or linoleum. There's a sound, a kind of drone, like there's a huge machine humming far away. But it's so big that it makes the whole building resonate. Is this a building? Maybe it's a shipping container. I think I can see the walls. And the ceiling is low. I lift my head up and look in the general direction of where my feet hopefully still are. There's a faint blue light framing what must be a door. It's strange. There's so little to go on. But whatever this place is, it seems familiar. After a couple of minutes, I can get up again. Oh, my body feels sore. No, it feels bruised, like I've been beaten up on the inside. With my arms stretched out in front of me, I start walking towards the big door. It feels cold and smooth, but there's no handle. It only opens from the outside. I know this place. I've been here before, but I can't give the memory any context. Maybe it's the drugs. I turn around and start moving along the walls, my hands carefully looking for something. I don't know what. There's sticks on the floor, and they make an almost percussive sound as I hit them with my sneakers. While approaching the back wall of the small room, my hands find a big door with a handle. It's a refrigerator door, like I thought. There's refrigerators all over. As I open it, the rubber lets go with that familiar sigh. But there's no light. The thing isn't on anymore. There's no power. For some reason, I'm not sure why, I check if there's something inside. And there is. I feel plastic. I feel vacuum-sealed bags. And instantly, I know where I am. I know why this place is familiar. I'm standing in the cooling cell of a BBU restaurant. And in those vacuum bags, there's burgers waiting for the sleeper station. I hear footsteps. There's someone standing on the other side of the door. I can see two dark lines in the blue light where the feet are. This person is standing right there, waiting. Should I call out? But it's probably the creeper, right? He brought me here. Just as I wanted to say something, he speaks. I will tell you the rules of my game now. As he suddenly starts talking, it's as if his voice is coming from within me. I am the one who makes the rules, for I have the power to walk away, to leave you here where no one can hear you, where no one will find you. You will eat raw hamburgers for a couple of days, but you'll die of thirst within the week. It is my choice if I walk away or open the door. That's why I make the rules. I'm not sure if I should say something. I'm just standing here with my back against the refrigerator, waiting for what's going to happen. 
looking at the blue square of light in front of me. You will only get to speak once, and what you say determines not only if you will live or die, but also if you live, what the rest of your path will be like. For some reason, I start walking towards him, towards the door. Maybe it's because I want to be able to hear every word, not miss a single instruction. I will tell you a story about five doors, and after the story is over, you will get time to think as long as you'd like. But I won't repeat the story. I won't say anything until you make your choice. And after you've chosen, I will know what to do. I will know if I should leave you here for death to collect or open a door. I will know what kind of door I should open. I will know what kind of door you deserve. Are you ready for my story? I'm not falling for this one, that's for sure. I'm keeping quiet. He said I was only allowed to speak once. You understand the rules. That's good. Now, listen carefully. A story about five doors. Two warriors kiss their wives. It might be the last kiss, so they make it count. The warriors tell their wives they love them. And together, they whisper a short prayer, hoping to cross paths again, in this life or a next. The warriors are part of a nomadic tribe called the Naraka. Each year, the Narak people travel the same path, like a flock of birds moving to the rhythm of the seasons. They go through the same figure-eight shape, starting at the north side of the island, and then traveling to the old overgrown city, towards the hills at the very center, making their way south to the beaches where all the big ruins are. The ruins once called beach houses, now used to let the animals rest and find shelter from the wind, to let the women breastfeed their children in peace while the men set up the tents. Each year, before starting the second half of their journey, circling back north, the Naraka stay in one place for a couple of weeks. That's when the new warriors of the tribe leave the group to try and undergo a strange rite of passage, a mysterious process meant to test the strength and intelligence of a Narak warrior. Not even the rest of the tribesmen know what happens during the rite. Only potential warriors do. The only thing members of the Naraka see is that young people leave, and most of them never return. The ones that do return are different. They're stronger and determined, but also colder and distant. They've become effective warriors, honorable, but singular. That year, only two warriors were ready for the rite of passage. For some reason, the number of warriors making it to that point was getting smaller each year. The Narak eldest conferred with her shaman about it many times, but she couldn't figure out what was causing this. 
even the eldest wasn't allowed to know what the right was. So the only thing that she could do that day was ask her shaman to pray to the night sky. The tribe needed warriors to protect them from the growing forces of violence spreading across the island. The two warriors felt the pressure, as if the terror of stepping into this unknown test, only survived by a few, wasn't enough to deal with. One warrior was a young man, and the other a woman. They had no names anymore until completing the rite. If they didn't return, they would die nameless. So both the woman and the man kissed their wives and left the encampment at the beach, their knees shaky and their vision blurry from the overdose of adrenaline. As was the case each year, the oldest warrior had given them instructions on where to go and what to do. Before the rite was over, this man was expected to drown himself in the sea to make room for new blood. It had been that way since the day the gods ascended to make room for Naraka. But as the master warrior was making his way to the beach, the eldest stopped him. She asked him to serve the tribe for another year. The tribe needed him, especially considering the fact that only two were sent out, and most likely no one would return. He was, even at his age, the best warrior to ever protect the Naraka. He was probably the best warrior to ever live on the island. The old master didn't know what to say or do. His code of honor was clear. He was to disappear into the waves, but he wasn't allowed to ignore a direct order from his eldest either. The old woman standing on the rocks near the beach, the wind blowing her long fur dress around, as if trying to revive the foxes, proposed a compromise. However many warriors returned, he would fight them to the death. That way, the strongest and most skilled warriors stayed behind to protect the tribe from violence. The master warrior felt the old ways shouldn't be changed, but had no choice than to accept the compromise. The two young Naraka walked for two hours following the directions their master had given them before preparing himself for his drowning. They crossed large grassy fields and small forests. They walked without eating or drinking like they were told until they found the entrance to the cave. There was a simple mark on the rocks, a number five, written in red paint or blood. Their master had said, find the hand and make your choice. Together, they entered the cave. Walking into the cave, they found themselves in a large space with a big hand painted onto the floor. The fingers were spread, each pointing to a different wooden door. The five doors were sunk into the rock walls as if they had always been there, grown into place slowly by Mother Nature. But the shiny silver doorknobs told another story. Both warriors stood on the hand and looked at each other for a second, a last moment of sharing the unknown, the potential of great honor, the danger of disappearing nameless. Their master had said, you will both pick one of five doors, but you cannot pick the same one. 
The first door goes outside. The second goes inside. The third door leads into the present. The fourth goes towards the new. And the fifth door lets you fall back into the old. Both warriors sat down, cross-legged, and meditated on their decision like they were taught, breathing deep, focusing on as little as possible, letting the old parts of their brains do what they do best. Map a route to survival. The woman got up first. She startled the man with her sudden and silent decisiveness after only meditating for a few minutes. The man feared she would pick the door he was considering. But she didn't. She picked a different one and stood facing it, waiting for him to make his decision. The knob on her door was different from the other four. It was without markings. It looked like the door she chose had never been opened before, or hadn't been opened in a very long time. After meditating for 20 minutes, the man also got up and walked towards his door. As instructed, they grabbed the round doorknobs and counted from five to zero before simultaneously opening and stepping through. The woman could smell the ocean. Her feet were cold and she looked down to see the sand sucking up her toes and the seaweed around her ankles. She was back at the beach. It was morning. The orange sun was peeking over the horizon. Behind her, the encampment was asleep, white smoke from the fizzling fire pit drifting over the beach towards the cliff. But something was wrong. Something was different. She looked down and saw old hands, bigger than hers. She felt her face, and there was a beard. She rolled up her sleeve and looked at the many tattoos on her right arm, markings of battles won but she never fought them. Trophies for animals caught that she never stalked. The young woman warrior was now inside the skin of her master. She wondered why he hadn't drowned himself. She turned around and saw a figure appearing at the top of the cliff behind the Nara camp. Her fellow warrior had also returned home. After years of training together every day, she recognized his outline. But his way of walking had changed. It was more confident. While she looked at him descending the rocks, making his way to the beach, she felt a truth rising, a fact that she couldn't deny. And she wasn't sure where it came from. The two of them were going to fight to the death. They were going to fight on that beach it was going to be a long fight that would end by the time the sun was powerful and right above them. The whole village would be watching, crying while their loved ones tried to murder each other. She would win the fight and he would die. For some reason, the woman warrior could feel the eldest had ordered the fight. She didn't understand why the eldest had tampered with the old ways. Why would anyone risk disturbing the order of the island? The will of the gods? The way things are? The law of the Naraka as written on the stones in the old city? And above all, why would she be ordered to fight a man she loved like a brother? 
one of her own, a fellow tribesman. If she was to stay and fight her brother in the body of a master, she would become the best warrior the tribe had ever seen. She knew it. She saw it. And it was the truth. She would become a legend, ushering huge changes for the Naraka. But the old ways pulled at her feet. They dragged like the ocean pulling back with the tides. With the wind turning, as if giving her a slight push in the right direction, she walked the old man's body into the water. Without looking back, she disappeared herself and himself into the cold orange waves. This is the end of my story. A story about five doors. Now my question is simple, sleeper. If you want to continue your journey towards wherever it is you are going, you need to pick a door like the warriors did. The first door goes outside. The second inside. The third door leads to the present. The fourth goes toward the new. And the fifth door back into the old. Think about this very carefully, sleeper, because your decision will decide what you find once you step out of this cooling cell. And if you get to step outside at all. Okay, so what is going on right now exactly? I mean, what was this guy talking about? Tribe warriors picking doors in a cave? This guy is completely psychotic, right? I thought he worked for the gardener. Is this all part of scaring me back into line? Into making me a diligent drug mule? Because it worked. I'll drive packages around all day, all night. I'm sitting cross-legged in the middle of the dark cooling cell, wondering if there is any meaning to that story, to this interaction. But there can't be. He's just on a completely different level of weirdness, that one. But I do know that if I say the wrong thing, or whatever this nut job considers the wrong thing, that he could leave me here to die in the dark. I don't want that, so I have to play his game. I have to try and find the logic, pick the right number. My options are to go inside, outside, to the present, the new, or the old. Yeah, so that really doesn't make things any clearer or easier. Say, for argument's sake, someone living inside of a psychotic breakdown kidnaps you and asks you to choose between those five options. What would you pick in order for him to not murder you? Any ideas? Anyone?
Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy, or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.